The following program contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today for part two with Lance and Jen. How's it going, you two? I am doing fantastic today, Tim. I am excited to bring the second part of our coverage on Christopher Wilder to the listeners because we both feel that it's a very important episode. So I hope everybody gets something out of it. I hope everyone's doing well. I know this is a disturbing topic, but Tim, is it affecting your mood? I need to know. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Lance. Yeah, th- this is a wild case and just an insane story um, about a, uh, a serial killer, a spree killer, who was sort of determined to die, I guess you could say. And uh, and this is the second part of this story. And I agree, Lance. I, I hope people can take something from this, uh, something positive, more than just the horrors he committed. And we're going to take a quick break before we throw it to the rest of the episode and we get right into it. So make sure to listen to part one if you haven't already. And if you want to hear these episodes ad-free, you can check out what we're doing at Crawl Space Premium. You can now subscribe via Apple Podcasts right there in the app. It's $4.99 a month, and you get every episode ad-free. Plus, you get our weekly bonus show where we go a little deeper on the topics that we discuss over the week. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm, and you can sign up for Crawlspace Premium there. And if you've got a couple extra minutes, swing on over to wherever you rate and review your podcasts and give us, uh, you know, five stars, maybe a good review. It goes a long way, and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back. And two days after the body of Terry Ferguson was found, March 23rd, on March 25th, Susan Logan, who is 21 years old, was abducted from the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. Her husband had reported her missing. Wilder drove her more than 180 miles north into Kansas, where he checked into the I-35 Inn in Newton. So in this hotel, Wilder tortured and raped Suzanne and then cut her long blonde hair. And he left these locks in the motel room's trash can. I don't know what the significance of cutting the hair is. It's just more sadism, I think. (sighs) Maybe. And the next day on March 26th, Wilder drove to Milford Reservoir just outside of Junction City, Kansas, and stabbed Suzanne to death. He left her body under a tree. Some of her clothing had been removed, and her face was bruised badly. Her body was found one hour later, but it took a week for it to be identified. Ugh. I mean, you said that it was uh, sadism, and why would he, Jen, your question was, why would he cut her hair? He leaves her alive long enough so that she can be aware of what he's doing to her. And she probably had this wonderful hair, so he had to have her know that he was in such control that he could take everything from her. 
Yeah, I mean, this is such an obvious point, but this guy just hated women and, you know, had a particular hatred for beautiful women. And, I mean, maybe, like, part of the pathology here was, like, to destroy their beauty, you know, and maybe cutting the hair was part of that. And I think to destroy their own worth, like, their own sense of, like, if they made it out of there, they would still be damaged. He glues their eyes shut, cuts their hair off. Like, bruises them so badly that it takes a week to identify them, if they're lucky. And at this point, 40 detectives and the FBI were now assigned to this case. And when Wilder's abandoned Chrysler was found without plates, it was assumed that he was traveling in Walden's Cougar. And also on March 26th, the body of Terry Walden was found floating face down in a canal. Her body was fully dressed, tied with a rope, and her mouth was covered in tape. She had been stabbed multiple times, but there was no evidence of sexual assault. No evidence, but I doubt that she wasn't sexually assaulted. I mean, that seems to be the motivation here, right? Yeah, it seems like it. So as far as I can see here, this is the first time that we've seen him stabbing his victim. And on a single day, Suzanne and Terry were both found murdered and due to stab wounds. So... What is the motivation here to switch up from throttling and gluing eyes shut and and the other forms of violence that he perpetrated on these women and now he's moving into stabbing them? Is it just experimenting? Maybe. Maybe he's like because he has that thrill seeking sort of personality, like maybe the other methods weren't doing it for him and he just needed to like up the ante or experience something different. We do know from covering the uh, Connecticut River Valley case that um, lots of profilers have likened stabbing to a form of penetration. And we do know that the other victims were all raped, sexually assaulted in some way. So maybe that was just like, I don't know, another sort of carryover. So that's inspiring, at least at this point in the story, that so many detectives and the FBI are now on him. It almost seems like a manhunt or like the cavalry are after him at this point. Can you imagine being one of the detectives or being the detective in charge or the FBI agent in charge and the first body's found, second body's found, and now you're talking like we're finding two bodies on the same day? I mean, the escalation had to have been intense at that point i think i think 40 i think they started with 40 and this is just my personal opinion i feel like they started with 40 because it was the first 40 that weren't working on something and they fully intended to grow it even more if this was going to continue further because the violence was so obviously escalating at a incredibly rapid pace yeah i can't imagine the pressure on law enforcement either because like at least with other serial killers we did mention that cool down period so and there was there's always a race against the clock right like is when's the next victim gonna happen and in this case it's almost inevitable like every hour that goes by is like another woman dead i can't imagine how frantic they were trying to find this guy And on March 29th in Grand Junction, Colorado, Wilder spotted a pretty blonde teen at a mall. Cheryl Bonaventure, who was 18 years old, had already done some modeling and she was likely an easy target for him. Cheryl vanished and her car was found locked in the parking lot. Something, however, differed in this case. Cheryl and Wilder were seen dining in Silverton together. They told the staff that they were headed to Las Vegas with a quick stop in Durango. So that's interesting. So they have dinner together and then 
they told the staff that they were headed to Vegas. Like, I can't help but think that Wilder was just planting a false trail. I don't know why. If he knows he's on the run and he knows people are after him, why he would, you know, give up his next location. But they went to Vegas and he had been proposing um, spontaneously, it sounded like, Mm -hmm. earlier in the story. So I don't know. Oh, that's a good point, Tim. Like, maybe he was taking Cheryl to Vegas to get married. I think so. She almost seems excited about it at this point, too. And on the next day, the two of them were seen at the Four Corners Monument and checked into a motel in Page, Arizona. On March 31st, Wilder was back in Utah where he shot and stabbed Cheryl Bonaventura and left her body near the Kanab River. On April 1st of 1984, Wilder actually arrived in Las Vegas. He went to the Meadows Mall where there was a 17 magazine cover model contest taking place. And at this... 17 magazine cover model contest. Um, Michelle Korshman was there. She was 17 and she was an aspiring model. A photographer there captured um, what, in my opinion, is probably the most terrifying photo I've ever seen in connection with a case. Captured a photo of Wilder staring intently at Michelle with a broad smile on his face. Witnesses stated that Michelle left with Wilder and that he had been approaching various women throughout the day with modeling propositions. So he's just there using it as a buffet. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrifying. And the, and the image is uh, pretty much endlessly disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, how wasn't he kicked out of there for trying to, I don't know. For being a creep? <laughs> yeah, well, th- that, but also like being competition to 17, right? I mean... What is he doing? He's he's poaching these models at their event? Yeah, that's true. Maybe he had planned to sell his photographs to 17. I don't know. Or that's what he said. You know, he had right. like fake credentials or whatever. So Yeah, so his his end game is, is murder anyway. So I guess it doesn't matter. He doesn't care. Yeah, clearly he doesn't care. <laughs> and ultimately, Michelle disappeared, but her car was found still in the parking lot. When she was killed is unknown, but he disposed of her body near a rest stop by the Angeles National Forest in Southern California. Yeah, it's getting getting even worse with where he's um, dumping these women's bodies. I mean, he's not even trying to put them in a canal or, you know, hide them in any fashion. He's putting it de- near a rest stop where there's like lots of traffic that goes by. So he's just yeah. Dumping him out of the car, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of room there in Angeles National Forest where you know to uh, to hide um, (laughs) evidence if you want. It's enormous. Uh, So yeah, absolutely no effort towards that whatsoever. Yeah, take a half hour walk in there. And although Wilder's murder spree continued, his pattern changed. On April 4th, while in Torrance, California, Wilder approached Tina Marie Risico, who was 16 at the time, and he found her at a mall and talked to her about modeling. And she left with him to do quote-unquote test shots. It is said that when she had to go home, he became angry and pulled a gun. He bound her, put her in the trunk of Terry Walden's car that he was driving, and took her to a motel room in El Centro. He tied her to the bed and sexually assaulted her, but did not kill her. There's been a little speculation on why Wilder didn't kill Tina right off the bat, like after he assaulted her. So Tina apparently had a pretty problematic childhood and had been sexually assaulted before. Um, And we do know that victims, like repeated victims of sexual assault or rape, tend to kind of disassociate from the act in order to preserve themselves and preserve their sanity. So it's speculated that while uh, Wilder was raping her, she kind of went 
a bit robotic and didn't respond to his actions. There was no hysteria, no panic, and this didn't satisfy Wilder's, um, I guess, appetite for that kind of reaction. Um, but he also may have decided to keep her around to help him, you know, lure other women to his car. Wow. There's a yeah. lot, lot to unpack there. Oh, God. Yeah. So this is where his uh, pattern is changing. So interesting perspective that he would be so affected by her and her behavior that he either, like you said, A, or not even A, like this was, do you think that, I guess my question is, do you think that there was any romantic feeling towards her? Or was he just planning on using her as bait? Using her. I don't think this man is capable of feeling romance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't either. I was just curious what you thought. No, and I don't think, even if Tina, like, I mean, people say that maybe she was experiencing Stockholm Syndrome or something, Mm -hmm. you know, with the later events that happened. I mean, this young girl is 16 and she's been repeatedly traumatized and now she's been abducted and raped again. And she's, it's, I mean, it's the worst kind of irony that her trauma ended up saving her life. Yeah. Wow. And Tina was reported missing right away. The manager at the store she had been in reported seeing Wilder loitering outside the store while she was in there. And the manager identified Wilder from a mugshot. And Chris Wilder had now been added to the FBI's most wanted list after his crimes and pictures were all over the news. Wilder and Tina Rosicco headed back east through Arizona, New Mexico, Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. We have a picture of the uh, wanted poster for Christopher Wilder, and they have like four pictures of him in a lineup. Um, I believe one was from a previous arrest, one in which he had facial hair and kind of a receding hairline. And they did one where he was clean shaven. They did one where he had this like creepy mustache and glasses just in case he was wearing some sort of disguise. God, he looks like BTK with the mustache a little bit. Oh my God, yeah. Ugh. And the violence continues to April 10th, of 1984 with Donette Wilt. She was 16, filling out a job application at a mall, just like Tina Rosicco was doing when she was abducted, when Tina herself approached Donette, identifying herself as Tina Marie Wilder. So I could see where some people used a Stockholm syndrome there, knowing that she's using his last name. Yeah, I just want to reiterate, in no way is Tina responsible for what she did. She was not complicit in these actions at all. She was a victim. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent point. She asked Donette to step outside to speak with the manager where Wilder was waiting with a gun. He forced Donette into the car, taped her eyes and mouth, and repeatedly assaulted her in the backseat while Tina drove east. The three stopped in Ohio for the night, then continued driving to Niagara Falls. That is a long drive. That's a super long drive, yeah. And all the while, Donette is being repeatedly assaulted, and both girls were threatened with death if they said anything or tried to get away. So that's back to your point, Jen, that she's not complicit in this. She's not of her right mind, and she's under the threat of being murdered by somebody who she knows is very capable of murder. Mm -hmm. And these are children, too. Children, yes. And while in Niagara Falls, Wilder saw a televised plea by Tina's mother begging for the safe return of her daughter. He put both girls in the car, directing Tina to drive to the woods at Penyan. 
Wilder took Donette into the woods and attempted to suffocate her, but she fought and struggled too much for him. And he stabbed her once in the front and once in the back. She pretended to be dead until Wilder left and drove away with Tina. Donette then dragged herself to the roadside where a passing motorist called for help. She told police that they were headed for the Canadian border. Wow. Another incredible story of survival. I cannot, like, can you imagine being, like, strangled and stabbed and having the wherewithal to just, like, remain still and not, like, writhe in pain or anything for enough time for this guy to, like, believe you're dead? No. Holy crap. It just goes to show what the a human being can do given a life or death situation that it must have been going through her head how much blood she was losing and she needed to maintain consciousness in order to pretend to be dead. Uh, it's remarkable. Also, I just want to give a shout out to the passing motorist who stopped and helped because I don't know how many people would put themselves in that precarious situation out of the blue. Cause we do hear stories about like no one, you know, no one, no one helped. They screamed and no one came to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or not wanting to involve themselves in a dangerous situation. You know, I'm sure you like, yeah, they see Donette like wandering out of the dark bleeding. That's, that's gotta be terrifying, you know? Yeah. And there was a dangerous man uh, nearby not long before. So mm-hmm. uh, totally accurate to uh, if that person was afraid themselves at that at that moment. And my God, it continues. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And south of Rochester in Victor, New York, at the Eastview Mall, Wilder saw Beth Dodge, who was 33 years old, getting out of a gold Pontiac Trans Am. He had Tina persuade her to come to their car took her keys and forced her into the Cougar, having Tina follow them in the Trans Am. They pulled into a deserted gravel pit where he had Beth get out, and he shot her twice in the back, abandoning the Cougar, and left with Tina in Beth's car. So this woman is just like collateral damage, unfortunately. I don't know which, which is worse. I mean, at least she didn't have to suffer as long as the other girls did. Um, But this was just purely to get her car, right? Yeah, I think so. Wilder told Tina he was going to send her home and drive to Boston Logan Airport. Nine days after taking Tina, he bought her a ticket to Los Angeles and set her free. And at that time, she actually believed she wasn't going to survive. She believed he was going to shoot her in the back as she walked away. What a terrifying moment. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I can't believe you let her go. She's she's flying from Boston to Los Angeles, which is, what, a six-hour plane r- flight. Mm-hmm. And during that time, she doesn't say anything to anyone at the airport or on the plane about what happened over the past nine days. She must have just been in complete shock. But then yeah. she does something a little strange. I mean, you can't blame her for acting strangely. She's just been like completely traumatized. But when she lands in LA, she takes a taxi to a boutique where she purchases lingerie with money Wilder had given her. And she told the clerk that Wilder had cut her hair to look like Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that Tina is still under the spell of Wilder, like a spell, you know made from terror of course 
But it's like, even though she's like all the way across the country from him, she's still doing his bidding. Like he probably just told her like, hey, go buy some something nice for yourself when you get back in LA. I don't know. This is what people point to when they like victim blame. But again, she's a child. She's traumatized. She's not in her right mind. And we are just working off of information that's sourced through articles and and online material. And no one knows exactly what happened between the two of them. No one knows exactly what was stated between the two of them. So there's no basis to victim blame in this situation. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, this is a girl who's been raped before, too. It's only the newest trauma in her life, you know. So she's been trained to like learn how to live with, you know, horrific things happening to her. Right. And our researcher made a note here, said, was there something different with Tina? And after talking through this, the way he would abuse and disfigure and torture and beat all of the other women, this was just another version of that, only he was doing it psychologically. And I don't know if that was intended from the beginning or he realized the control that he has over the ones that he physically abuses. This is just as much fun. Yeah, it seems like he didn't get the same kind of satisfaction um, in hurting her um, as he got with the others, as you mentioned earlier, Jen. And uh, I guess he shifted to psychological. Yeah, just it just didn't see the point in um, in killing her. I mean, who knows? Maybe he told her to continue his crime spree herself Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i want to i want to just like make this point that most rape most sexual assault even murder i would venture to say is not really about the act itself it's not about you know desire it's not about anything to do with sex really it's about control right that's the motivating factor here so I think you're totally right, Lance. I think this is just another way to manipulate somebody, another way to control somebody. It's so wild because we hardly have talked about past crimes that are concluded and, and solved for the most part. So you get to really have these conversations and explore the psychology of it and explore the psychology of the victim and the psychology of the perpetrator. And it's just remarkable to me that she was able to survive all of that and and give her account and i don't know what type of life she's living now but i mean just to be just to be used i i and you said it better than i'm saying it right now jen when you said that it was morbidly ironic that her previous trauma was able to be what she needed to survive this trauma and remarkable to me that he was able to manipulate and understand okay i'm not getting the same satisfaction from the physical violence so i'm gonna just flip it to psychological uh, abuse because he couldn't just not leave her alone right 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 and who knows if if this was even like a conscious thought in wilder's brain right like he was just doing exactly what he wanted when he wanted to do it and what do you two make out of the fact that she said wilder told her that he didn't want her to be with him when he died. I think Wilder in some respect knew his time was up, that it had to end yeah. at some point. Like the inevitable end was that he would either kill himself or be killed by police. Also, maybe it, it made him less of a target um, at this point without her because if law enforcement 
thought that he was traveling with a 16-year-old girl who looked like Tina, obviously it was Tina, um, maybe this was self-preservation. That's a possibility. But then we see him abducting another 19-year-old. Right. Wilder headed north towards Canada at this time. And on April 13th, 1984, he saw a 19-year-old on the side of the road with a broken-down car. He stopped and offered to give her a ride to a service station. And when he started passing several places, she became suspicious. She actually opened the door and jumped from the vehicle. Wow. Yet again. Can you imagine? These, these three girls that survived, I mean, they had to... You know, what... How terrified must you be to like open the door of a moving vehicle on the highway, I'm assuming, and just jump? Like that fate is better than staying with this guy. But I'm so, so happy that she survived. And how hard are you running once you've recovered from jumping from the vehicle? I mean, you're not feeling anything. You're not feeling anything that might have happened from that jump, any damage to your body, and you're just running as hard as you can. And with time running out, Wilder got rid of his belongings, including his camera and victims' things, and he drove into New Hampshire. So he knows his time's up. He knows that this is the pinnacle of his escalating violence, and he is getting rid of everything, stripping it all down, and ready to go out in a blaze. That's what I'm gathering Mm -hmm. from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just miles from the Canadian border, two state troopers, Leo Jellison and Wayne Fortier, spotted Beth Dodge's gold firebird at a Getty gas station in Colebrook, New Hampshire. And the troopers astutely recognized the wanted fugitive, even though he had shaved off his beard. When approached by one of the troopers, Wilder, who was 39 at this time, dove into the Trans Am and reached for his 357 Magnum in the glove box. A scuffle ensued when trooper Leo Jellison went for him. Wilder fired two shots at himself. The first bullet entered his stomach and exited through his back and actually lodged beneath one of Jellison's ribs. The second bullet went through Wilder's heart, killing him instantly. What a absolutely crazy moment in the careers of these two troopers. Yeah, seriously. As we've said before, it would have continued. Like, he didn't show any signs of slowing down. He had, like, this girl had just escaped from his car. And fortunately, these two troopers were, were, you know, brushed up on, you know, wanted fugitives and saw him enter the the, uh, gas station. But holy crap. And what a cowardly move from Wilder, too. It's like the minute he gets apprehended, he shoots himself. And he harms an officer in the process. Yeah. And when we were first looking over this, I was of the opinion that he shot himself in the stomach, hoping that the bullet would go through him so he could at least take out one of the troopers. But as I'm kind of thinking about it now, it was probably a scuffle where he couldn't get the gun, the officers, the troopers reaching for the gun. So he was just firing at any part of his own body that he could to kill himself and probably hit his stomach and then, you know, moved it up to his heart. But the trooper Jellison actually survives and makes a recovery, which is great. But he's going to have some PTSD as well. No question. Yeah, definitely. And Wilder's body was returned to Florida and cremated there. And during Wilder's time on the run, he drove more than 8,000 miles. 
and his family claimed that they were shocked regarding all of the accusations. Valerie Wilder, his sister-in-law, Christopher's brother's wife, said that he was the perfect gentleman, and that's a quote. And another quote, my kids adored him, end quote. I've already expressed my exasperation with how someone is able to pull that off. So that just rolls into this. I mean, it's almost like stereotypical. He was the nicest guy, the perfect gentleman. Yeah. Had dogs. My kids loved him. Yeah, it's, it's so eerie that he's that these men are able to to carry off seemingly normal lives. Um but fortunately there's a little, you know, glimmer of hope here. Uh the families of Wilder's victims filed millions of dollars in claims against his I think two to seven million dollar estate most of which went to the IRS, but in 1986, the court ruled the balance of his estate was to be divided between the victim's families. So, like, a far cry from justice in a trial and seeing him, you know, answer for his crimes, but at least it was something. I don't know. I don't yeah, know how they I feel mean, about money it. will never replace a human life. No. But you're right. There was some sort of effort to provide some conclusion to this reign of terror. And I have never seen the movie Easy Prey, but apparently a 1986 made-for-TV movie suggested a case of Stockholm Syndrome with Tina Rosicco. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't <laughs> salacious at all, and I'm sure it didn't victim blame on most levels. I've never seen it, though. Maybe the follow-up episode to this will be our movie review of Easy Prey. Oh, my God. What a name, too. Yeah. Take it easy. That's... Too soon, 1986. Oh, they were on it, right? Never seen the movie, but they focus on the Stockholm Syndrome with Tina and not the, again, Reign of Terror and all the other victims. So by introducing Stockholm Syndrome with Tina, you've already made her into a perpetrator. Just, I'm sure, easy prey is suggestive to me that she was not capable of making her own decisions and he sought her out because he was so smart mm -hmm. yeah, yeah and and on that note too i mean we'll go over the items that were found in wilder's possession after his death but one thing is notable there's a book called the collector by john fells i've read this book it's terrifying um but it's basically about a man who kidnaps a young girl and keeps her locked in his basement and um, people kind of point to that as a story of Stockholm Syndrome, but the end of the book, spoiler alert, kind of reveals that this woman had been playing along the whole time. She felt no actual sort of manipulation to like fall in love with her captor or whatever. She just like made him think that so she could survive and eventually be let go. And I think that's uh, probably more so characteristic of what Tina was going, going through. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to speak for Tina and what she felt at the time, but I think that's an interesting book to have been found in Wilder's possession. Was that a fiction book or nonfiction? Fiction. Interesting. It's interesting that it was it was marked up as well, and I immediately thought that Wilder had marked it up, but I'm wondering if maybe Tina had marked it up. Maybe she had read it at the suggestion of Wilder. I don't know. I mean, she was only with him for nine days. True, so it's, true. I mean, it's it's not a long book. It's a very short book, but I don't imagine her reading. <laughs> In the <laughs> midst of all that killing, probably <laughs> yeah. not. 
Probably not yeah. unwinding with a book. Yeah. yeah, she did a lot of driving. Yeah. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And also found in Wilder's possession after his death was that 357 Magnum gun, rolls of duct tape, handcuffs, rope, electrical cord and wires, a sleeping bag, his business partner's credit card, and the aforementioned book by John Fowles, The Collector. Nothing suspicious about any of those items found together. I mean, again, it sounds reminds me of Israel Keys with <laughs> yep. um, you know his murder kits. Yeah, of course he would hide things in strategic places, and he was like much more of a planner mm-hmm. than uh, Wilder. I mean, Wilder had all these things, so he could just like at will abduct and rape and murder women. As we mentioned earlier, the murders of 15-year-olds Marianne Schmidt and Christine Chirac remain unsolved, but Wilder was one of three potential suspects, and that's also known as the Wanda Beach killings. And it's also stated that he may be responsible for the murder of beauty queen Tammy Lynn Leppert in 1983. And nearly 39 years ago, a hunter found Sherry Lynn Ball's naked, badly decomposed body along Route 63 in Orleans County. It was in a soggy wildlife refuge known to the locals as the Alabama Swamps. For more than three decades, however, no one knew who she was. She was listed in police reports as an unidentified Jane Doe. And then in 2014, state police had her body exhumed from the grave. A DNA sample was taken and compared with a national database. That enabled police to identify the victim as Ball, who had left her Florida home in 1983 at age 20 in hopes of pursuing a career as a fashion model. There is now a growing belief that Ball may have been murdered by Wilder. I would like to think that it's not a situation where they need to close a case So they start to not pin other murders on Wilder, but associate him with other unsolved murders, other cold cases, because, hey, it was the right time, right area, and the right MO as far as her being a beauty queen and just the look. Uh, So hopefully that's not the case, where it's just looking to close the books on one of these. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors that kind of fit into his victim profile, right? I mean, you mentioned them. But yeah, I wonder if they had more substantial evidence than just like, you know, the right profile. I mean, doesn't it feel like a little bit out of his wheelhouse, I guess? I don't I feel like I'm overusing MO because it was 1983 and he was primarily like spreeing i mean but well before that he was you know abducting and raping women so this could have been a potential first murder of his Mm -hmm. so this is before this the crime spree began right before yeah yeah it does it does sort of fit um i guess his profile of a victim for sure and uh not really hiding the victim kind of placing the body on the side of the road kind of fits as well and uh, li- likely sexual assault or, or worse as well uh, with her being uh, without any clothes. Mm. It's really a textbook case for someone who's creating a profile to, like, let's say you're, you're a beginning student and you need to create a profile. 
it's got the you know the practice ones the the ones that he doesn't kill it escalates and then it just explodes over this month or so i think this should be taught in schools to be honest for anyone who's looking to be like a criminal profiler or a criminologist or you know a psychologist or something because what is going on in this guy's head like where is where is the split happening successful businessman a gentleman kids loved him but he he knew he was going to die he knew that this was the ramp up to his 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 execution by police and when did he make that decision when he started or like halfway through I don't think it even was a decision. I think it was like by rote. I guess. It's like almost an animal. Yeah, there there's had to have been some planning involved to like abduct his early victims and then, you know, go through uh, charges and his conviction and stuff. And, you know, help was offered to him, right? If he, if he had decided, you know, like, hey, I have these terrible urges. I don't want to do these, this, these things to people. So I'm going to try to get help or, you know, it, lock myself away but yeah it it was a decision to like start but I don't know if it was conscious every time he was just like and I don't mean to say that to like allay blame at all because he's a person but it just seems like he was just like a, a rampaging like thoughtless creature I mean at some point he knew that he was going to die because he told Tina he didn't want her with him when he died so I think at some point he knew it was it was going to ramp up to that point. My theory would be um, earlier, like right when he started, maybe even when he's sitting in that therapist's office, when he's facing what he would have to do if he didn't. You yep. know, I think I think just one one side of that was something he didn't want, and uh, he'd rather have this absolutely insane crime spree. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't even know what to say in conclusion other than I feel sickened. But, you know, we learn from these things. Well, I think for the first one out of the gate, we uh, did pretty well going through all of these horrific crimes that were committed by one Christopher Wilder. And I think that while it was triggering in some moments with the mention of the acts that he perpetrated on the victims, I feel like, again, as we said in the beginning, there is a lot that we can learn from all of this. And we are in the true crime business and we can't be sugarcoating these acts because I think that I hate this cliche analogy, but I think the devil is usually in the details and you can learn a lot from that. But goddamn, it gets dark. Yeah, and potentially a disservice to what these women went through in their brief mm-hmm. lives. Um, we don't want to sanitize it either. And again, big thanks to Marianne White for her research, and the sources are listed in the show notes. 